Greetings, PPL Familia. I'm Paul Williams, President and CEO of Project for Pride and Living. Welcome to the Race, Place, and Policy podcast. PPL has created this space as a way of engaging with our community on the wide range of issues impacting our work on a daily basis here at PPL. It's our firm belief that the complex issues around race, place, and policy are central to what we do and to the dialogue that we're having with community. We thank you for joining us. This month, our conversation is around opportunity and innovation, particularly in the world of community development. I'm joined by Nawal Noor, CEO of Noor Companies, a development and construction firm in Minneapolis, partnering with a lot of different developers on rebuilding in this, in this city. Welcome, Nawal. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Paul. It's a, an honor to always spend some time with you. Um, you were uh, one of my uh, first mentors as I got into this industry, and I'm fortunate to still have you as a mentor and a partner. Well, thank you. Thank you. So I actually want to start by by talking just about your background and kind of what brought you to this work. Um, so, so tell us a bit about how you came to the Twin Cities and kind of how you developed your passion for for working in community? I started uh, in, you know, in this sort of environment in the development world as a sort of not intentional. Uh, it started out as a, uh, a help to our community. I spent about 10 years in corporate finance, uh, working um, in a number of different uh, roles, mergers and acquisitions, buying a number of companies across the the world, um, doing corporate finance on the sort of the larger context of a $16 billion company. Um, and my interest really started with, um, we were a resident of uh, Aon, uh, which is uh, you know similar to PPL, a large affordable housing developer in the Twin Cities. Um, they were our landlord when my parents got here from, uh, from Somalia. And um, as a landlord, one of the asset managers um, identified me as she was showing us the pro the property and said, "You speak really good um, Somali, and 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 you speak English uh, clearly. Would you consider working for us?" And I was a college student at the time for University of St. Thomas, and. Um, I had no idea what I was going to do for them. I was working as a work-study intern in the li college library, and I had asked Barb, I said, would you consider working with my uh, University of St. Thomas work-study? And she said, you know, let me, let me, let me look into it. And uh, at the time, Alan Arthur, as the CEO, I think she spoke with, with him, and there was a, a, an African-American CFO, her name was, was Nancy. And she worked with Nancy and I worked with Nancy and I became an employee in the asset management area. And so as an affordable housing developer, I really had some nice exposure to what it was like to both acquire and develop new affordable housing units in the Twin Cities. That kind of gave me a little bit bug, um, but I went off to corporate world and I didn't think about development for a very, very long time until the community member, I was a community member um, and our community needed a place to worship as well as um, gather. And they needed that space and didn't have a lot of money. And they came to the only person who knew how to negotiate a deal. Um, and and um, uh, I, I ended up uh, working with a small affordable or a small um, nonprofit uh, owner 
of a site in Minneapolis that was disposing of their site. And I negotiated the deal. Um, in fact, that deal was actually a contract for deed. It wasn't even a full acquisition purchase at the time, but the community gathered a number of um, resources, including my own, and we ended up purchasing the site. And I, um, I worked for the next four or five years, I worked on redeveloping the site. It was a large site, over two and a half acres with two buildings. One ended up being as an entrepreneur incubator, and the other one became a redevelopment site that was uh, made up of an education center and a mosque. And so that really restarted sort of and reignited my interest in development, specifically community development. And working with the city of Minneapolis, I had a little bit of exposure. And I just happened to be the only East African developer who really understood sort of entitlement process, working with the city, um, understanding and gathering the, the costs associated with construction. Um, and it, pretty soon it was very, very evident that the construction companies that I was talking to had never seen anyone that looked like me. And um, that was good and bad. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and it really made me think about, is there an opportunity for someone like me to really help the community and bridge the gap between the sort of the education that's required and the, the difficulty, it, you know, the amount of work it takes to really do community development? Yeah. So, uh, and, and newer companies, now how long has newer companies been around? Um, I started newer companies in 2016. I started newer development in 2012. Okay. So you've, you've been at it for a while now. Um, <laughs> and just, just say a little bit about, you, you talked about newer development, newer construction. Um, uh, just say a little bit about what you all uh, actually do. Yeah, I mean, uh, so NOR Companies is the holding company. It's made up of NOR Construction and NOR Development. We are um, the largest minority-owned construction firm. Um, we started out as a development company for, through NOR Development. And um, at the time, I purchased an, you know, uh, land from the city of Minneapolis um, and uh, private land and developed it, um, both acquisition rehab, um, a lot of the work that I did was really associated with ownership, home ownership and commercial ownership. Um, and, uh, you know, North Construction is one of the largest construction companies in the Twin Cities. Um, that's a women and minority owned firm. We also happen to be a social um, enterprise. I mean, I built this company as an engine that drives four closely related aspects of economic development, housing infrastructure planning, advocacy, commercial development, industrial development, and neighborhood and business district vitality. And with all of that encompassing with one purpose, which is to really create a shared um, prosperity for our community. Um, and that's really what drives sort of my interest and mission. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, my goodness, you sound like a private sector version of PPL. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we align so well together. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, roughly how many, uh, how many employees do you guys have and, and uh, what kinds of just, just, I, I know you've worked on a lot of different kinds of projects, but, but maybe just, just describe a, a, a few different types of projects that you've worked on. Um, we have 10 employees um, today and we have four people that are, um, consultants. And so uh, a lot of the um, smaller things like community engagement, um, you know, some of the financing side, we, we hire out. Um, 
And we work on a lot of different projects. Um, you know, some of the, um, I would say more um, known, well-known projects are, we built the ST's funeral chapel in North Minneapolis. In fact, that was one of the first projects that I ever worked for a client other than our own, because I started out as a construction company, just doing our own construction. Um, and, and at the time I started it because I worked with a, with a gentleman in um, the Rondo neighborhood. I was doing two projects with in the Rondo Frogtown neighborhood that we purchased from um, the land bank at the time. And um, um, the person I was working with took advantage of one of the employees and didn't pay them. And I was seven months pregnant and every single day I would make sure, did you pay? We paid him, but he never paid the, the person who was working for them. And my whole thought was, if I can get into a top 2% MBA program, I should be able to get my general contractor's license and pass the test. And I, <laughs> I was pregnant and I took the test and I remember passing it and thinking, now I'm a contractor, what am I going to do? I have no construction background. And so I, 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 I was nine months pregnant. I remember, you know, one of the first projects we were doing was a $5 million expansion of that mosque. And I remember thinking, I'm going to watch this concrete get poured and understand how they do construction, whether it's forming the concrete understanding the strength of the concrete. I mean, I, I am such a geek in that way. And I enjoyed that aspect of it because I wanted to make sure that people never questioned my ability to be a constructor. Mm. And a lot of companies are known for tokenism. And the reason is most people who own these companies don't understand the construction or the sort of the technical aspect of what they're doing. And so the question you asked me was, what kind of projects do we do? We have been doing all kinds of projects. Most of the work that we do is commercial work. And so over a million dollars is what we look for uh, from a construction size background. But we do small projects for clients as well. We've done uh, over many targets, including the target East Lake Street, which is the one that was burned down during the unrest. Um, we've done a number of projects for Hennepin County. We've done the U.S. Bank uh, branch that burned down on West Broadway. Those are some of the projects that are sort of more well-known projects. We've done, you know, smaller projects for, you know, Seward Pharmacy, which is, you know, for a small nonprofit organization that gave to an East African owner that is on Lake Street that burned down and that were um, was ransacked as a result of the unrest in on Lake Street. Um, we do schools. We do government centers. Uh, we are working on a $22 million uh, renovation of the, mechan of the mechanical of the entire government center for the next two, two years. Mm. Um, and so those are some, some specific projects, wow. but we do elevator work. Yeah. We do multifamily um, hospitals where yeah. we're going to be working on the Abbott Northwestern, a billion dollar pavilion um, that's a brand new addition uh, that Mortensen is working on, um, and we're going to be a sub to them, um, and we're going to be working on that in 2024, 2025. Well, that, that, that's um, it's just, again, such a, a broad, a breadth um, of projects, and I just love um, your, you, 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 you combine curiosity with, uh, with commitment, uh, and I, I really, I mean, it's really, uh, really something to to hear your passion, right, for understanding what's going on here, and then your and then your commitment to to kind of see it through and do something about it, and 
and take action. So really, really exciting. Um, you, um, you, you, you talk, uh, again, you, you fundamental to who newer companies is, um, is this whole notion about, you know, kind of BIPOC ownership and, and community ownership. And, and can you just talk, I've heard you talk in the past about how, 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 how community ownership shapes projects differently. And, and can you just say just a, just a little bit about what does that look like? What, it, what it is it in the way that you do your work that, that kind of creates these different projects? And I will just say, I, for anybody who hasn't seen the Estes Funeral Home, um, I, I don't know what funeral homes are supposed to look like, but that is a beautiful building, really. <laughs> and and it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful statement about community when you drive by it. Um, and, and, and the Estes family is such a, such a strong and important, uh, asset to our, to our black community in particular, but, but just say a little bit about how does that, how does your approach kind of shape projects differently? I mean, I wish we had more than half an hour to talk about that. It's such, it's something I'm so passionate about, uh, you know, when we were building Target East Lake Street, one of the things Target wanted was this question of why would anyone want to destroy a Target store? What did Target do to, you know, to the people that were, you know, impacted by George Floyd? Um, and one of the things they really tried to do was how do we include community in the built environment? If I am building an, a neighborhood, and none of the own, own none of the buildings are owned by people who live there. Imagine the change between the time that you develop that land and build it to the 20, 30 years after that. When you own, you build legacy. You build ownership. You take care of that space. I remember uh, um, we, you know, Hosmer, I, I looked at Hosmer and I said, you know, it, it, I went back the, the day after and I wanted to make sure no one, you know, touched that, you know, 100 year old Carnegie, you know, uh, library. And there were neighbors that were watching. They put a watch on, on, the, on, on the parking lot to ensure no one, no one damaged those, that building and the windows that were you know, 100-year-old windows that you couldn't replace if you tried today. And the difference between the library and the Target is that the library is built for the community. It is owned by the community. It's a place of gathering. And when we change the way we look at the built environment, and we include people who are from that community, we change the fabric of the community completely. I mean, we make sure that those buildings stay forever. There's pride in ownership. <laughs> it's hmm. it's legacy. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I I uh, my back, you know, my family's from Somalia, and we owned land. My mom was a real estate; she was a land developer, and she she's one of those people who could see ten years, twenty years down the road, and when there is nothing sitting there. And one of the things that you see as a land developer is you have vision that others don't have when you don't. Others see dirt, you see possibilities. Mm. Built environment is about possibilities that are beyond the, the days that we are. It's 20 years, 30 years down the road. And our communities, especially black and brown communities don't have the luxury of ownership. And so we talk about gentrification. You know, the reason gentrification 
you know, bothers us. It's not because we're building, you know, buildings that are owned by really rich people who are, you know, different from the people that live there. It's because we don't own anything. When when the land value goes up, you don't get any anything out of it. You get displaced. So we call it gentrification, but it's a form of displacement. And the way to change displacement is to make sure people own own the building. There's the wealth creation. Years from now, who's going to be living there? Is it your your kids and my grandkids? Or is it someone else who doesn't look like you? And that, to me, is really what drives me. Lake Street's an example of that. 500 businesses were impacted. Most of those businesses did not own their buildings. Mm -hmm. And none of them, very few of them, had the insurance needed to be able to replace whatever it is that they lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is history completely lost. I mean, it changes the fabric of Lake Street if we don't try to put that back after we lost it. Yeah, I uh, I heard you speak at a LISC event earlier uh, this week, um, and and you said something that I I I just thought was so powerful. And and it, and you were talking about kind of your evolution in in your work, and and you and you said you know you could do one off projects right for 10 years and 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 yeah you're doing the work um but but what does it mean to be a real developer and you talked about can you just say a little bit more uh, what you meant by that and you said you want to be a real developer and and I think what you just said you know when others see dirt you see possibilities i think that feels like that's part of it but just say a little bit more about uh the difference between doing one off projects and and really approaching the work that in the, in the ways that you're talking about it. Um, <laughs> uh, I have a, I have a good friend of mine and, you know, we have conversations every other week. And one of the things he said, you know, I had this conversation with him, philosophical conversation about what developers are. And he said, what's a developer? It's just a term. What we all want to do is to be real estate owners. When you think about, there's a new, there's a study that was done just recently by Grove, I think it's called, and uh, one of the things that they identified, the the commission, the the competitive inner city uh, with Grove Impact um, commissioned the report, and they showed they did three hundred, there were three hundred and eighty two white developers in the country. Um, less than one percent were black and Hispanics, and they 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 looked at both of them. And 0.4% of the developers, real estate developers and owners, were black. And it just gives you the perspective. Real estate is about wealth creation. It's, you know, when you own real estate, you own your destiny. You get to make a decision about what it is that gets to be, who gets into that building, who is a tenant. Uh, what type of business goes into that building? You know, what type of housing goes in there? How big is the housing? Who do you want to bring in? Is it a family or you want to bring singles? Do you want to bring, you know, students there? You get to make a decision about what it is that comes there. As a developer, you get to do master planning. You get to, do, you know, determine the community fabric. You know, do you have a park? Do you have a you know, a library, <laughs> you have uh, a target store, you have, 
you know, a pharmacy there. You get to determine what gets built there. That's a, that's a developer. Hmm. That's in a mass scale, that's a developer. When you do single off projects and it takes you two to three years, like it's been some of the development projects take us two to three years, sometimes five years, if it's an affordable housing development, frankly, I don't think that's a develop. That's de that's not development. I mean, one of the things that I love about the work that LISC is doing is that it's bringing small developers into this uh, into this area. However, most developers that were there the last, you know a few nights ago are working on affordable housing development. We work on affordable housing development. In my perspective, as a person who spent a lot of time in finance, affordable housing development is not ownership. Public funders own it, investors own it. You don't get to decide on the depreciation. You don't get to benefit on depreciation. You get to be able to own a little bit of it. There's a little bit of cash flow that comes of it. However, for 15 years, investors own it. And it's deferred loan. To me, that's a great way to enter the market, but it's definitely not a great way to build wealth. Mm. Real estate in its own form means that you have 70% loan and you have 30% equity. And as that loan is paid down, your ownership stakes go up and you own it more and more. And over the course of 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you've paid off the asset and now you could do whatever you want with that asset and you'll still generate the income, but all of that income will come to you rather than go to somebody else. Yeah. That's wealth creation. I, I, uh, I, I, I love that. And I, we would need another half hour to, cause I'd love to, to dive deeper into that question of, of affordable rental housing and what does it represent? I think it's actually, you're absolutely right about somebody else owns it. Um, for those 15 years, um, I think it's actually more of an asset to community. It's a it's a part of the continuum uh, that is so crucial for folks to get on the journey towards wealth creation and ownership. Um, and ideally, it's not a permanent place. Unfortunately, for a lot of folks, particularly in our you know communities of color, it is uh, a, a, a kind of a permanent place that they end up staying but um but but again I, your point about ownership is is right and i just you know I, I just think to my own my own family uh you know long time you know black family from rondo summit you in st paul um my grandfather <laughs> uh owned property in rondo owned you know um a duplex uh, a couple of other houses they were business owners along university avenue um my dad owned a fourplex over, you know, kind of close to Central High School. And I always scratched my head because I, we had to go and, and fix all the, the, you know, the windows and paint the units and so forth. But why would he own a fourplex? That seems like a, a pain, you know, a pain in the rear. <laughs> um, but as I reflect back on it, um, that there was a culture of black ownership, land ownership, that was really important to them and to others in our community. Um, and, and that was a source of pride. It was a source of flexibility and wealth that allowed mm -hmm. them to house at times other relatives mm -hmm. um, that created 
leverage and assets um, that had other longer term uh, kind of implications. So, um, so I, I, again, I just uh, really agree with you on that. Um, and I, I, and I appreciate, yeah, I really appreciate that, Paul, because my family was affordable housing renters for a very long time. And in fact, you know, affordable housing is a form of helping families get to the point where, where they have built enough wealth to go and buy the, buy their own. And, but I, I think in our community, uh, affordable housing for, for many families is a long-term housing. It is not, they're not gonna go and move out because there is no other way for them to be able to move out. And so one of the things that I, you know, as a developer thrive on is how do I make the places that we build home, a permanent home? If someone had no choice and they didn't have a place for them to go, how do we make that? How do we make it so it's a culturally competent, affordable housing? How do we make sure the the way we build the units are sized for families that are larger and growing when they may come at two with two kids but when they grow older they're going to go and they're going to have eight kids and so how do you make the two bedrooms big enough so that three beds can go in and the kids can go because there's not they can't go and apply for three bedrooms because they don't exist the stock of three bedrooms and four bedrooms don't exist. So the two bedrooms we build have to be generous enough to be, to be able to accommodate future growth of families. That is a critical component of how we build affordable housing today. Yeah. Um, I want to pivot to uh, um, the, the work that we're doing with you at PPL and, and the, uh, the 3030 Nicollet site. Phase one, we're kind of moving down the road on that one. Uh, working with the black architects, uh, creating uh, uh, entrepreneurial spaces, business spaces for, for BIPOC uh, uh, business owners. They will actually own the space. We will be doing some housing there. We'll be doing a, a new Wells Fargo branch. This is on the site where the Wells Fargo branch at Lake and Nicollet, uh, or just off of Lake, uh, the, the Wells Fargo branch burned. Um, you're going to be working with us on the second phase. Can you just say a little bit about what's your vision for uh, for kind of that second phase and, and what excites you about that overall project? Uh, first of all, I want to say I am incredibly grateful and excited to be partnered with PPL. Uh, I've, I've wanted to partner with PPL for a very long time. In fact, I had a meeting with Chris, who's not there anymore, um, uh, and and one of the first things I wanted to do when I started doing development was figure out how do I work with this incredible organization in our, in the heart of our community. And my office was two blocks away from where your office was. So I, I spent some time thinking about that. And so given that we are here today, it, it means so much to me. Um, on the second phase of uh, 3030, what excites me the most? We are on the first journey of the community engagement. We're working with Anthony Taylor, who you know, uh, with the cultural wellness, um, and we're going to be working with the same architect, uh, black architect, the female architect, Morris, who's going to be who's been working on the phase one, um, and so that continuity continuity is going to con continue for the for the to the second phase. Um, I I consider phase two as a blank canvas uh, because 
it really gives us an opportunity to think about and imagine what are the possibilities. We've explored uh, you know, a couple of paths. One is ownership. Um, it's a lot harder to build ownership housing in the heart of Minneapolis, given the context and the expense um, and so one of the first questions we asked as a com from a community engagement perspective is, what does that look like for community? What is the cost of construction and the impact of how much they would pay? And it is a lot harder of a conversation to have, especially in a condo context in Minneapolis, given the litigation that comes with condos. Um, and so we're, we're exploring a couple of other options. One is building the community asked for large bedrooms Three and four bedrooms are at a very, very um, sort of, um, it's a high, it's an in demand in this community. Uh, the wait list for the townhomes that are across the property has been four to 10 years for three to four bedrooms. Uh, and it's really important that we figure out how do we build those, that type, those types of units for the community. The other piece that's really important is between phase one and phase two, there's going to be a large number of young people that are gonna be living in these two buildings. And so that sort of the service required to ensure that we build community that is gonna thrive and build the next generation of developers and students and really smart kids is one really difficult journey that I want to be able to go on with PPL. You know, whether it's thinking about workforce development, how do we create a space for young people to thrive when they come out of school? Where do they go and build and spend time? You know, whether it's activity and we're building a gym that is activity-based so kids can come and hang out and also spend some time so they're not going and wandering on the streets and not don't have enough activity to keep them busy. You know, we're building youth um, uh, space to work with uh, uh, community-based organizations that are nonprofits that are culturally competent, whether it's disabled East Africans or um, Youth Prize, uh, working with smaller organizations that are East African-based organizations. Um, we're thinking about entrepreneurship, a child care center. There are so many components um, that are that are sort of baked into the community engagement. And we're just on the first, in fact, on the 15th next week is the second community engagement session, which uh, and there's four more that are going to come up. Um, but the idea is that we want to co-create with the community. Uh, it is not something that it's just me or PPL that are going to determine what goes here. It is about figuring out what it is that is going to make this space a place that really becomes home for the families that are going to be living there. Yeah, it's really exciting. And, and uh, I, I, um, I, you know, I, not surprisingly, the first words out of your mouth about what are you excited about is acknowledging the community engagement process. Uh, which in phase one, we started working with Cultural Wellness Center, Anthony Taylor, Mother Atum, and others at the Cultural Wellness Center. They are our partners in that community engagement process and, 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 and working with community voices to shape what, what is going to be here is, I think, that essential first step to creating ownership, right? To creating 
you know, a sense of, I see myself in this place. I see myself in these buildings, in these green spaces, in whatever it is that gets, that gets built there. Um, so that, that's, uh, uh, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, uh, and, and I think the second phase is going to be very exciting. The first phase has, has gone well. We're, we're, we're almost getting to, uh, kind of, it's not the conclusion, but as you know, these projects end up taking two, three years before you even get to construction. So Yes. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. And we're thrilled to be partnering with you, um, on that site. Part of, part of what PPL has been doing actually for quite some time is, is thinking about how do we partner with community? PPL has this big platform, you know, 1600 units of housing and a, you know, a big budget and, and relationships and funders. And, but the question for me in my time here certainly has been, how do we partner with community? How do how do we create PPL or recreate PPL as a bit of bit of a platform for community voice? And so a lot of our work in the Native American community has been, you know, in in a similar vein. Um, the work we're doing at thirty thirty Nicollet, uh, another example. We're doing some exciting work up in Brooklyn Center uh, with a, with a black church, uh, Pastor Lewis up there. Um, Similar work uh, with the with the black led um, healthcare organization on East Seventh Street, over on St. Paul's East Side. So, so for us, we're really excited to to be doing this and to be demonstrating, you know, that model of what I call equitable development um, at at scale. So, um, just a, a couple of last thoughts and questions here. You know, one, um, what are you hopeful about? In this community, again, you 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 have talked, and you and I have talked at length about the challenges that you faced uh, in <clears throat> in so many different spaces in your journey. But but as you look forward in this community, what are you hopeful about? What what kind of positives do you see out there? Trends that you think are are moving in the right direction? Well, uh, Paul, you talked a little bit about what. PPL is doing this journey to equitable development. You've been working on that for a very long time. I think for the first time in the last two years, especially following George Floyd's murder, what I see is a shift to really acknowledge developers of color, that there is a dearth of developers of color, that there is a gap and opportunity for community to have people who represent to be able to be part of the built environment and to reimagine our state and our region. Um, and I'm more excited about uh, funders and investors really considering, let's take part in this journey. You know, I uh, US Bank is uh, an investor in one of the deals that I'm working on. And, uh, you know, the fund that they have is a $100 million fund for syndication for uh, affordable housing. You know, when I started this work, no investor wanted to talk to you if you didn't have the guarantee and the balance sheet required and the net worth. And for the first time, people are open to the idea of working with you if you don't have the balance sheet. I mean, I think where PPL comes in is you've got this immense amount of 
capital uh, from a social capital perspective, but also the guarantee and the balance sheet required to be able to do this kind of work. When you partner with a developer of color that has had success, but needs more opportunity to kind of scale, what you provide is a platform to be able to scale that work. And what I'm excited about is possibilities of PPLs of the world and not just PPL, I think PPL is the first of its kind when it comes to that. I think that there is an incredible amount of opportunity between public and private partnerships for our organizations like PPL and investors. I mean, we're talking, you and I are on the groundbreak coalition group that meets together with, that's gonna bring $2 billion into the Twin Cities uh, for black, black renters. You know, nonprofits that are addressing these kinds of you know, disparities, how do they, how do they take their work to the next level? $2 billion is a drop in the bucket when it comes to real estate development. It takes a lot of capital to be able to have the scale and the impact we have. Our, in our, our market, our region needs that diversity. When I was doing uh, in the construction industry, there's a, uh, um, there's a disparity, stake, stakeholder disparity that was done in 2016. And I worked with the African-American Leadership Forum, Jeff Hassan, who you, you're friends with, and you know, Jeff and I went around to nine public entities. And one of the things that I'm really good at is data. We can talk about numbers all day long. We can talk about disparity reduction and equitable development all day long in the form of a discussion. What we want to make sure is that, that we have data behind it. When we did the disparities study in terms of the construction industry, nine entities spent over $8 billion. Less than half of 1% went to people of color, specifically Black-owned firms. And it showed that there is significant disparity. And it made every single entity, the ones that really wanted to make a difference, look at their balance sheets and their purses to say, we have all these inclusionary goals that we put in place. Why are they not working? It's the same thing with this development. If we don't have numbers, we cannot make the change that we want. And data is powerful. And I think that's one of the things that I'm really excited about is to have this conversation about data-driven decisions. In Minnesota, we love, we love to admire problems and we love to talk about problems. Mm. I think it's really important to have actions behind them. Yeah. And that's really what makes me excited. Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. There, there is, there is a, a ton of opportunity out there. Again, at the, at the event that I saw you at uh, this week, the LISC event for it's a cohort of, of developers of color, emerging smaller developers of color uh, and it, and it just uh, it was just so uh, so heartwarming and and hopeful to see all the ideas folks working you know arts you know incubators housing commercial I mean just really wide range and uh, and you certainly are are chief amongst those in terms of uh, kind of the base that you've built um, um, so just uh, re really good thinking and really good work um, just uh, grateful for for your time and and for your for your energy. So, and thanks to all of you for listening in today. Uh, I'm Paul Williams from PPL, and this has been the Race, Place, and Policy podcast. We'd love to hear what you think uh, about uh, our conversations. Um, drop us a, a note at communications at ppl-inc.org. That's ppl-inc.org. 
and we hope that you'll subscribe and sign up for notifications from wherever you get your podcasts. You can always find us on our website again at ppl-inc.org. So until next time, be safe, be well, uh, and thanks so much for joining us. 